This audio file comes from the Libri Ideas Library at www.libri-ideas-library.org. The library contains over 1,000 lectures and discussions which explore questions about the reality and relevance of Christianity. We ask you to respect the copyright for this audio file which belongs to Libri Fellowship. The file is for personal use to share with friends, family and colleagues, but please do not publish the material in any format or post it on a website without seeking permission from Libri Fellowship. Please note that views expressed in the lecture and discussion time do not necessarily represent the views of Libri Fellowship. Um, but tonight we are talking about the long battle for women's suffrage in the United States, or how women got the vote. And let me start with prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the progress our country has made since the day when only propertied white males could vote. We also pray for your mercy and help right now that you would help our country preserve voting rights for all citizens. And I just pray that you'd be with us this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay. On August 18, 2020, less than a year ago, our country celebrated the 100th anniversary of the ratification of the 19th Amendment to the Constitution, giving women the right to vote. On November 3rd, 2020, I went to the polls with a sense of solemn eagerness to cast my vote for the 46th President of the United States. I am profoundly grateful for the thousands of known and unknown women and fewer men, but there were men, who fought a grueling battle across three generations for that fundamental right of citizenship to be applied to women. This lecture is an adaptation of a chapter in a book I'm working on and in trying to con condense the story of how American women got the right to vote, I'll inevitably leave out important events and people. Be forewarned, this will talk will be more of a history lesson than most Libri lessons, lectures rather. So I'm having lots of PowerPoint to keep your interest. Starting with the birth of the women's suffrage movement. This is going in the wrong direction. Okay, I'm going. I'm going in the PowerPoint is not mine. There we go. Okay. The first women's rights convention took place in August 1848 in Seneca Falls, New York. The purpose was dis was to discuss the social, civil, and religious condition and rights of women. In the week before the convention, Elizabeth Cady Stanton wrote the Declaration of Sentiments, the founding document of first wave feminism. It was modeled after the Declaration of Independence, declaring the, quote, self-evident truth that all men and women are created equal. The document included Stanton's impassioned resolution, quote, that it is the duty of the women of this country to secure to themselves that sacred right of the elective franchise. From that moment until American women won the right to vote, it took 72 years. Neither Elizabeth Cady Stanton nor her colleague Susan B. Anthony, who wrote the 19th Amendment, it's called the Anthony Amendment, lived to cast a legal vote. Elizabeth Cady Stanton died in 1902, and Susan B. Anthony died four years later. 
19-year-old Charlotte Woodward was the only woman present at Seneca Falls who lived to cast her vote in the 1920 presidential election. The Seneca Falls Convention was followed by local and national conventions, the establishment of women's clubs and associations, public speaking tours, and the founding of newspapers and other print media to spread the ideas and arguments of women's rights advocates. But it should never be forgotten that until Abraham Lincoln issued the Emancipation Proclamation in 1863, while white women discussed their rights, more than three million Americans were still enslaved with no rights at all. For many of them, it was illegal even to learn to read and write. Race and suffrage, human rights and wrongs. In a speech at the National Women's Rights Convention in 1866, the black Christian civil rights activist, suffragist, orator, and published writer, Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, challenged white feminists to feel with black women. She said, quote, you white women speak here of rights. I speak of wrongs. And I tell you that if there is any class of people who need to be lifted out of their airy nothings and selfishness, it is the white women of America, close quote. Harper and other black suffragists would have the disheartening experience of being excluded from most white suffrage organizations. While historically, most white suffragists began their political activism in the abolition movement, after the Civil War, the suffrage movement became sullied by racism. The Negro Hour versus the Woman's Hour. In 1866, the American Equal Rights Association, AERA, was founded with the stated purpose of securing, quote, equal rights to all American citizens, especially the right of suffrage, irrespective of race, color, or sex. That same year, Stanton and Anthony became aware of the wording of the proposed 14th Amendment to the federal constitution. In an effort to protect the voting rights of male ex-slaves, <clears throat> slaves, it introduced the word male three times into the Constitution in connection with the word citizen, raising the question of whether or not women were United States citizens, and for the first time explicitly excluding them from the right to vote. Until then, the United States Constitution had made no distinctions between citizens on the basis of sex. The question of who had the right to vote was up to each state. Following the American Revolution, state constitutions had limited voting rights to white males with certain property qualifications. After that, the states gradually broadened the category of citizen voters, which gave suffragists the hope that further broadening would include women. <coughs> they could petition state legislatures to change their rules and give women the right to vote in state and national elections. Stanton and Anthony saw the proposed 14th Federal Amendment as a gargantuan roadblock to that hope. It was a watershed moment for them. The two women's rights activists were outraged. They realized that if the proposed 14th Amendment became law, it would require another constitutional amendment to win the right for women to vote in federal elections. To do that, both houses of Congress would have to pass the proposed amendment by a two-thirds majority followed by ratification by three-quarters of the states. Like that. 
don't know what that was. Stanton predicted the victory would be delayed by a full century. These two stalwart first-wave feminists could not bear the possibility of black men winning voting rights ahead of white women. Elizabeth Cady Stanton reportedly vowed, I will cut off this right arm of mine before I will ever work for or demand the ballot for the Negro and not the woman. The 14th Amendment was ratified on July 9th, 1868. The proposed 15th Amendment further protected the voting rights of black men and triggered heated conflict in the American Equal Rights Association, their meeting in May 1869. Stanton argued that the amendment created, quote, an antagonism everywhere between educated, refined women and the lower orders of men, especially in the South. She spoke with disdain at the thought of, quote, Patrick and Sambo and Hans and Young Tong, who do not know the difference between a monarchy and a republic, who cannot read the Declaration of Independence or Webster's spelling book, making laws for educated white women. Anthony urged the group to actively fight against the 15th Amendment and support, quote, educated suffrage. Lucy Stone and other like-minded feminists strongly disagreed. Stone said, I thank God for the 15th Amendment and hope that it will be adopted in every state. I will be thankful in my soul if anybody can get out of this terrible pit. The ex-slave Frederick Douglass, a staunch supporter of women's suffrage and friend of Elizabeth Cady Stanton, nevertheless drew a stark contrast, a stark distinction between the violent oppression of freed slaves in the South and the struggles of white women. He argued, quote, when women, because they are women, are dragged from their homes and hung upon lampposts, when their children are torn from their arms and their brains dashed to the pavement, when they are objects of insult and outrage at every turn, when they are in danger of having their homes burnt down around their heads, when their children are not allowed to enter schools, then they will have an urgency to obtain the ballot equal to our own. Close quote. Douglas and others argued that since a choice seemed necessary, it was the Negro's hour. Stanton and Anthony were not won over. They had hoped that the Negro hour would coincide with the woman's hour, but it did did not. So white suffragists divide over this issue and later reunite. The American Equal Rights Association dissolved and split into two groups. In 1869, Stanton and Anthony formed the National National Women's Suffrage Association to fight for a women's suffrage amendment and against passage of the 15th Amendment. They also tackled controversial issues like wife abuse, the double sexual standard, inequalities in divorce law, and sexism in the church. In spite of their efforts, the 15th Amendment to the federal constitution was ratified on February 3, 1870. Lucy Stone, Julia Ward Howe, the author of the Battle Hymn of the Republic, and a black Bostonian, Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, formed a different organization, the American Woman Suffrage Association, AWSA. Don't worry about the initials because there's going to be a lot and eventually it'll come down to one, <laughs> one organization. Um, these people supported ratification of the 15th Amendment and continued the battle for universal suffrage focusing on campaigns to win the franchise state by state. 
In general, the American Woman Suffrage Association avoided more controversial issues other than race that might alienate potential supporters. And Lucy Stone disagreed strongly with Stanton's view that religion, i.e. Christianity, was a major cause of women's oppression. In 1890, uh-oh, there we go. Hmm, I don't know why I have all those. I only want the one. I only want the outline. Oh, well. Do you know how I only get the outline? Probably not. No. Well, I hope this doesn't keep happening. Um, I think I pushed the right button. There. Does that, that mean what it? You want? Yes. Good. But hope. Good. But as long as I'm in the right, as long as that's number six, it is good. Good. Okay. Thank you, Ben. I'm. I'm the next to lowest techie person in Labrie. My husband is a little lower than me. <laughs> I'm actually his. Te- I'm younger than him, so that explains it. Um, <laughs> In 1890, the two organizations merged under the name the National American Woman Suffrage Association, NAWSA. That's the one that's going to remain for a long time. So um, you can remember the NAWSA, which became a single-issue women's suffrage movement. Stanton became its first president and was followed by Susan B. Anthony in 1892. The first victory for women's suffrage was in the territory of Wyoming in 1869. Twenty years earlier, Governor Campbell had sat at the back of a women's rights convention in Ohio where men had been forbidden to speak. He never forgot the vision of competent women conducting that meeting, and after several days of deliberation, he signed the suffrage bill. This decision threatened Wyoming's petition for statehood, um, but the officials were firm. In a telegram to Congress, they stated, quote, we will remain out of the union 100 years rather than come in without the women, close quote. (laughs) Along with the vote came the right to become jurors. Women's rights activists had fought for this fundamental right, believing that a fair trial would never be possible for women as long as juries were made up exclusively of men. But the prospect of women jurors in Wyoming turned out to be much more contentious than the prospect of women voters. It unleashed panic in the hearts of many husbands, Historian historian Eleanor Flexner writes, some husbands were so inflamed that they declared they would never live with their wives again if they served on a jury. Women were given the choice of being released from jury duty on grounds of inconvenience. But in the spring of 1870, all but one female juror chose to serve the full term. And according to contemporary hearsay, that jury, quote, became such a terror to evildoers that a stampede stampede began among them and very many left the state forever. Close quote. Some saw this as evidence for the view of the Christian ministers and other reformers who had argued for years that women's moral superiority was needed to drain the swamp of the public male sphere. (laughs) After victory in Wyoming, more Western states followed and enfranchised women. Suffragists faced more entrenched opposition in the East and South. As state laws changed, increasing numbers of women were gaining the right to vote, but others were getting impatient and decided to test the law. 
The second section of the 14th Amendment referred to male citizens. But the first section stated that states could not deny citizens their legitimate rights with no reference to gender. With this in mind, a number of women decided to assert their citizenship by trying to vote. A few actually succeeded, succeeded, but most were turned away. In 1872, a group of 15 women, including Susan B. Anthony, succeeded in voting. Several weeks later, they were arrested and held on $500 bail for breaking the law. All but Anthony posted bail and were released. When her case came to trial, Anthony was fined $100, which she refused to pay. To her great disappointment, the judge let her go, ruining her hopes of appealing her case to a higher court. On August 18, 2020, President Donald Trump granted Anthony a posthumous pardon, which would not have pleased her, since a pardon implies guilt and she never admitted to having done anything wrong. Virginia Minor was arrested for voting in Missouri. She took her case all the way to the Supreme Court and lost. I'm going to think, look now at new arguments for women's suffrage. Early feminists had originally based their arguments for, equ- for equality on the Bible's teaching that all humans, male and female, are created equally in the image of God, and on Enlightenment principles of equal rights that ultimately depended on the Bible. By the turn of the 20th century, practical arguments were being added to those philosophical and theological reasons for women's right to vote. First one I'll talk about is the exploitation of women laborers. In 1900, one-fifth of the paid labor force was female, including single and married native-born women, immigrants, and ex-slaves. State laws were needed to protect women in sweatshops and factory jobs from exploitive hours and wages, predatory male bosses. Um, pardon? Yeah, these are, these are some of the Zoom folks, I think. Okay. You can silence them. Um, state laws were needed to protect women in sweatshops and factory jobs from exploitive hours and wages, predatory male bosses, and dangerous, unsanitary, and inhumane working conditions. These included windows nailed shut, fire hazard, deafening machinery, and endless fines for talking and laughing. Yet women themselves had no power in the legislative process. The U.S. Labor Commissioner Carol Wright maintained that, quote, the lack of direct political influence constitutes a powerful reason why women's wages have been kept to a minimum, unquote. And then in 1909 and 1910, the International Ladies' Garment Workers Union staged the first large general strike of working women. It was estimated that between 15,000 and 30,000 participated. Most of the strikers were women between 16 and 25, including immigrants from many different nationalities. For 13 bitterly cold weeks, they picketed in New York City and Philadelphia, holding signs saying, we are striking for human treatments and we strike for justice. The police mistreated and arrested the women. The New York, New York Women's Trade Union League brought the workers' plight to the attention of the public and procured help from wealthy club women and suffragists who raised funds to pay bail for hundreds of arrested strikers in compensation for their last lost wages. While the strike was called off with few gains for the textile workers, it also proved that women were capable of effective 
organization. And then there was an inexcusable fire. In 1911, it's not going. I'm pressing the button. Oh, press the keyboard, which will be the, it's not working. Uh, Pardon? How do I do that? (coughs) Oh, there. It's not working. We've got some techie people here. Is this the picture? Yes, that's the that's the slide. And it's not. No, and this is not working either. Hold on, I think. Ah, you got it. How did we do? You You think I did it? No. Well, I'll get you back. Don't tell me how it works. I'll just get you back. (laughs) All right. In 1911, a fire broke out at the Triangle Shirtwaist Company, which occupied the 8th, 9th, and 10th floors of a building in New York City. 146 workers, predominantly girls and women, died trying to escape. They leapt out of windows with their clothes on fire and died crammed against the barred doors to store stairwells. The two partners were acquitted of all charges. The one was later fined $20. The tragedy raised public outrage at the unpardonable exploitation of factory girls and women and was instrumental in drawing more immigrant and working class women into the suffrage movement. One of them was Rose Schneiderman, a Jewish immigrant from Poland who began work in the garment industry at age 13. By the age of 16, she was organizing other factory women to fight for suffrage and better working conditions. In 1912, she spoke at a public meeting responding to a New York State senator who worried that women would lose their feminine charms if they were allowed to vote. Schneiderman said, quote, We have women working in the foundries stripped to the waist, if you please, because of the heat. Yet the senator says nothing about these women losing their charms. Of course, you know the reason why they are employed in foundries is that they are cheaper and work longer hours than men. Women in the laundries, for instance, stand 13 or 14 hours in the terrible steam and heat with their hands in hot starch. Surely these women won't lose any more of their beauty and charm by putting a ballot in a ballot box once a year than they are likely to lose standing in foundries or laundries all year round. There is no harder contest than the contest for bread. Let me tell you that, Senator. College-educated women were also drawn into the suffrage movement in ever greater numbers. They were denied entrance to professions they were qualified for and were paid less than men who did the same work. They were frankly sick of not being taken seriously. Dr. Putnam Jacobi wrote in 1894, quote, Men accustomed to think of men as possessing sex attributes and other things besides are accustomed to think of women as having sex and nothing else. She went on to argue that insofar as women were ignorant, it was because, quote, until recently they were forbidden to learn anything, unquote. Dorothy Sayers' argument half a century later was strikingly similar. She argued that men are regarded as both human and male, whereas women are regarded as female only, since intellectual curiosity, capability, ambition, and achievement are human characteristics. They could only belong to men and could not possibly belong to women. 
huge swaths of the population continued to believe that women's places in the home, or at least true women, belonged in the home, in spite of the reality that enormous numbers of women were working for wages outside the home, many of them for necessity, by necessity. I want to speak now the, about the black woman's suffrage movement. On August 20th, 1866, 16 months after the decisive surrender of Robert E. Lee's Confederate Army to Ulysses S. Grant's Union Army at the Battle of Appomattox, President Andrew Johnson declared that the Civil War was officially over and slavery was abolished nationwide. This was August 20th, 1866. But beginning in the 1870s, the formerly Confederate states passed state and local Jim Crow laws enforcing racial segregation in the South. And in 1896, the Supreme Court's Plessy versus Ferguson ruling established the doctrine of separate but equal, giving federal legitimacy to institutional segregation, which continued until the Civil Rights Act of 1964. Most white suffrage groups, women's clubs, and associations revealed their racism by refusing to accept black members. And this practice was not limited to the South. Discouraged but undeterred, black women formed their own organizations and worked uphill for integration while openly challenging the racism of white suffragists. For them, racial and gender equality were inseparable. They organized for prison reform, workers' rights, equal education, and women's suffrage. They started women's clubs, schools, and orphanages to provide social welfare services for their communities. I can only mention a few of the courageous black women that we know about. There are thousands more who will never, never appear in history books, but who dedicated their lives to justice for their people and for all women, and God knows them. The first one I will talk about briefly is Mary McLeod Bethune. We'll come back to her later. She was born to enslaved parents, the youngest of 17 children. She founded a school for black girls, which eventually merged with a men's school to become Bethune-Cookman College in Florida. Mary served there as college president, one of the few women of any race to hold such a position. Being barred from membership in white suffrage groups, she joined like-minded black women in the Equal Suffrage League and eventually became one of President Franklin D. Roosevelt's advisors. As I said, we will meet her again. Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin, the one on the right, was born in Boston in 1842 to a white mother and mixed-race father. She experienced racism early, being expelled from a private school when it was discovered that she was black. She married George Lewis Ruffin, the first black graduate of Harvard Law School, and together they raised five children. When the suffrage movement split over the proposed 15th Amendment, Josephine partnered with Lucy Stone, and other white suffrage leaders uh, in founding the American Women's Suffrage Association. Throughout her life, Josephine was a dedicated journalist. She wrote newspaper articles and joined the New England Women's Press Association while raising children. White women's publications like The Lily, The Una, and The Woman's Journal were instrumental in spreading suffrage ideas and other important issues, as well as stories by and about women. Determined to do the same for black women, Ruffin started The Woman's Era in 1890. It was the first newspaper by and for black women in the United States. And through her national correspondence, she gained a voice in Texas, Colorado, and California. 
She used her newspaper to motivate black women to action, writing, quote, Our indignation should know no limit. We as women have been too unobtrusive, too little known. Where she perceived racism, Josephine's newspaper named it, as shown in the statement, quote, The exclusion of colored women and girls from nearly all places of respectable employment is due mostly to the meanness of white American women, close quote. Ruffin worked to integrate the New England Women's Club and founded the Women's Era Club to promote women's suffrage and fight lynching and other forms of racism. It was the first black women's club in Boston, but it never excluded white women. She also helped found the Boston chapter of the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, NAACP. Writing in their official magazine, The Crisis, she urged black men to support women's suffrage, arguing that, quote, the success of this movement for equality of the sexes means more progress toward equality of the races. Elizabeth Piper Ensley left Boston, where she had been a teacher, librarian, and activist for civil rights and suffrage. She and her husband both taught at the historically black Howard University in Washington, D.C., and later moved to Colorado. While in Denver, Ensley became a reporter for Ruffin's The Woman's Era and co-founded the integrated Colorado Nonpartisan Equal Suffrage Association. In 1893, that organization invited Carrie Chapman Catt, one of the most gifted speakers and strategists among white suffragists, to come to Colorado. We'll hear more about Catt as we go on. Black and white women crisscrossed the states for weeks, campaigning together for suffrage. Their labors were not in vain. On November 7, 1893, Colorado became the second state to enfranchise women. This victory was clear evidence of the power of integrated suffrage work. Ensley exulted at the sight of large numbers of women lined up to vote at their first opportunity. In 1894, Colorado voters passed another milestone, electing three women to their state legislature. Ensley continued her efforts to integrate Colorado women's clubs and died one year before the 19th Amendment passed. Like other black women suffragists, she had committed her life to the cause, but was under no illusions that winning the vote would end discrimination against women or blacks. As she wrote, woman's work in politics must be like that of the chambered nautilus, the spiral animal which, after completing one house or shell, proceeds to make another, and so is constantly advancing. We briefly met Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, on the right here, at the beginning of this talk. She's the one who said, you women talk of rights, I talk of wrongs. She was born in 1825, orphaned when young, and raised by her uncle, who was a Christian minister and abolitionist. Francis received a rigorous education in his school, the William Watkins Academy for Negro Youth, where she studied Bible, Greek, Latin, history, geography, mathematics, music, writing, and public speaking. An avid reader and writer, she published her first book of poetry, Forest Leaves, when she was about 20. She also published short stories, novels, and news articles. When a free black man in Maryland was captured and sold into slavery, Frances felt compelled to get involved in the abolition movement. She hid escaped slaves in her home and began lecturing with other abolitionists. After the Civil War, she worked with white suffragists and challenged their bias. 
In a speech at the 1866 National Women's Rights Convention, Frances spoke with realism about winning, what winning the vote would and would not accomplish, especially for black women. Having experienced racism and witnessed the human propensity to, quote, trample on the weakest and feeblest in society out of self-interest, she said, quote, I do not believe that giving the women the ballot is immediately going to cure all the ills of life. I do not believe that white women are dewdrops just exhaled from the skies. I think they are like men. They, like men, may be divided into three categories, the good, the bad, and the indifferent. Harper was a founding member of the National Association of Colored Women, along with Harriet Tubman, Ida B. Wells Barnett, and Mary Church Terrell. Until her death in 1911, she worked for equal rights for women and African Americans. Mary Church Terrell was another black suffragist who understood both the power and justice of integration. She was born in 1863 to Robert Church. She's on the left here. Her father was Robert Church, who was the son of a wealthy ship owner and an enslaved woman. Unlike most slaves, her father had been allowed to keep his wages and was able to build a prosperous real estate business when he gained his freedom. Mary attended Oberlin College, where she was one of, the, one of a very few black students. She graduated with a degree in classics and went on to earn a master's degree. In 1896, she co-founded and became the first president of the National Association of Colored Women, which united over 100 local chapters. By the early 1920s, the NACW had close to 100,000 members. Their motto was, lifting as we climb. Mary also became a member of the National American Woman Suffrage Association, the NAWSA, which was overwhelmingly white. At their convention in 1898, she admonished the members for their racial exclusiveness, arguing for the power and justice of an integrated movement. I'll quote her here. With courage born of success achieved in the past, with a keen sense of the responsibility which we will continue to assume, we look forward to a future large with promise and hope, seeking no favors because of our color, nor patronage because of our needs. We knock at the bar of justice, asking an equal chance. In 1904, Mary delivered a speech in German, English, and French at the International Congress of Women in Berlin, Germany. She spoke of the astonishing unlikeliness of a woman born to slave parents traveling to Germany to address an international congress on women in the year 1904. Like Elizabeth Piper Ensley and Frances Ellen Watkins Harper, she had no naive hope that any one victory, whether at the abolition of slavery or the enfranchisement of women, <clears throat> would end injustice. But all who knew her marveled at the joy she experienced with each victory, no matter how small. In 1953, one year before her death, the Washington Post wrote, quote, There have been many battles and many victories in Mrs. Terrell's long and energetic life. It may fairly be said of her that when she fought bigotry, it was never with hate. She met lethargy and prejudice with spirit and understanding, and she won the hearts as well as the minds of men. Close quote. Ida B. Wells Barnett like Josephine St. Pierre Ruffin and Elizabeth Piper Ensley, turned to journalism as a way to fight for the rights of blacks and women. She was born into slavery in Mississippi and was a child in 1865 when slavery was abolished. 
Her parents and younger brother died of yellow fever when she was 16, leaving her to raise six younger siblings. Dropping out of school, she started teaching to support the family. Though slavery was over, racism was virulent in the Jim Crow South. By the early 1890s, Ida was editor, part owner, and traveling correspondent for the Memphis Free Speech, writing about the unequal treatment of black people throughout the South. When three friends of hers were lynched because they ran a successful grocery store, Ida began a campaign against lynching, for which she received death threats. A mob attacked her newspaper office, and the manager fled for his life. Ida was out of town at the time and was warned not to return. From then on, she wrote articles and traveled to lecture against lynching and eventually settled in Chicago. In 1892, Ida B. Wells published Southern Horrors, a landmark history of lynching. She argued, quote, the way to right wrongs is to turn the light of truth upon them, unquote. Ida's anti-lynching campaign led her into suffrage work. She realized that black women could do nothing to stop or prosecute lynching until they had power in the justice system. <clears throat> black, women, black men and women needed to vote, serve on juries, and become lawyers, legislators, and judges. To this end, in 1913, she started the first black suffrage club in Chicago, the Alpha Suffrage Club. Ida was also a co-founder of the National Association of Colored Women and the organization which became the NAACP. We will meet Ida Ida B. Wells Barnett again later in this talk. The courage, dignity, intelligence, grace, and accomplishments of of the black suffragists we know about, and I've mentioned only a few, belied the common stereotype of their white peers that black women were by nature ignorant and immoral. Moving on now, out of the doldrums into new leadership and tactics. Suffragists referred to the years between 1896 and 1910 as the doldrums. New tactics were needed to gain headway in the states. In 1900, Susan B. Anthony retired from leadership of the NAWSA and was succeeded by Carrie Chapman Catt a gifted speaker and formidable organizer. She's the one who went to Colorado to help to work with black women um, and uh, gained Colorado as the second state to enfranchise women. Except for a nine-year gap, Cat headed the organization from then on. In 1902, Elizabeth Cady Stanton's daughter, Harriet Stanton Blatch, returned to New York after living abroad for 20 years. Appalled by the lack of political acumen among American suffragists, she founded the Equality League of Self-Supporting Women in 1907 to bring together women who earned their livings outside the home. 200 women showed up at the first meeting. They included businesswomen, doctors, lawyers, and working-class factory women united in their demand for the right to vote. Blatch publicly challenged the racial and class snobbery behind her mother's arguments for an educated suffrage. She believed that the suffrage movement needed laboring women and union women in order to win the vote for all women. Blatch gained a powerful ally in Rose Schneiderman, on the right, the working-class Jewish immigrant from Russian Poland, who I mentioned earlier. By age 16, Rose was organizing factory women to agitate for better working conditions and women's rights, including suffrage, 
and in the 1930s, she was instrumental in the establishment of a minimum wage and eight-hour workday in New York State. English suffragists had taught Harriet Stanton Blatch the need to plan dramatic events and keep suffrage before the public every day. She introduced tactics that were new at the time, holding open-air meetings like this and staging parades. These kind of events encouraged participation from working-class women who did not have the money to rent halls or publish newspapers, but who could join others outside to fight for their rights. Blacks also organized members by political districts. New suffrage groups sprang up around the country and began campaigning in earnest to win states for women's suffrage. By 1913, women had full suffrage in nine states, mostly in the West. But suffragists knew that the intensity of the unscrupulous opposition they had already experienced would be worse in states with more political significance. There was good reason to question an exclusive state-by-state suffrage strategy. But at the time, efforts for a federal woman's suffrage amendment were at at a standstill. Meanwhile, a young American Quaker and social worker... Oh... I don't know what's happened, Ben. It's the wrong. <laughs> I was just hitting, hitting the arrow down. The down arrow. Well, oh, that's what I was trying to do. Do you want me to go to slideshow? Okay. Do presenter view again. That just goes back into the mode. Okay. But, but I'm um, okay. There I am. Good. Go to the next one. Yep, that's it. Um, no, the next one. Maybe I'm hitting two at the same time. All right. Meanwhile, a young American Quaker and social worker, Alice Paul, was in England pursuing her studies when she found her vocation as a suffragist in the British movement. After years of futile, polite efforts to persuade the House of Commons to debate women's suffrage, British suffragists adopted the motto, deeds, not words, and resorted to more aggressive tactics hoping the publicity would embarrass party leaders into action. They stood on soapboxes at public outdoor meetings and heckled MPs. In response, the women were pelted with dead mice, beaten, arrested, and imprisoned. They were pinched hard in the breasts and buttocks and had their skirts tied up over their heads as they were hauled off to jail. Alice Paul was appalled by their treatment and joined the movement with single-minded purpose. In 1912, the mother of the British movement, Emmeline Pankhurst, concluded that, quote, there is something that governments care for far more than human life, and that is the security of property. And so it is through property that we shall strike the enemy. With that in mind, she exhorted her followers to be militant each in your own way. Under her leadership, English suffragists turned to guerrilla warfare, breaking windows, setting fires in mailboxes, planting bombs, cutting telephone lines, destroying golf courses, and attacking members of parliament. Alice Paul took part and was imprisoned at least six times, including once in London's notorious Holloway Jail. While in prison in 1909, she met Lucy Burns, who became a lifelong friend and colleague. That's Lucy with her. Political prisoners had rights and decent conditions, but the suffragists were treated as ordinary criminals with no such rights. They responded with prolonged hunger strikes, which were met with forced feeding through a tube down the throat or nostrils. Paul endured this treatment twice a day, 55 times, and described it as excruciating. 
1910, Alice Paul returned to the States as a celebrity. Two years later, she and Lucy Burns moved to Washington, D.C., where they formed the Congressional Union and a weekly publication called The Suffragist, with the single-minded purpose of pressuring Congress and the President for a federal amendment. With the blessing and help of the NAWSA, the two women spent eight weeks organizing the first great national parade to take place on Pennsylvania Avenue on March 3, 1913, the day before President Woodrow Wilson's inauguration. To raise publicity for the event, a group of activists under the leadership of Rosalie Gardner-Jones left New York City in February to walk to Washington, D.C., giving speeches and picking up more women along the way. They garnered a great deal of publicity and, in spite of terrible weather, made it to Washington in time for the parade. Thousands more came from all over the country. When President Wilson arrived in Washington, he expected to be greeted by a crowd. When he asked where the people were, he was told they were on Pennsylvania Avenue at the suffrage march. Close to 8,000 women and some men marched and 500,000 spectators came to watch. Led by Inez Milholland on horseback, the women marched eight abreast in groups representing their states, professions, and colleges. They wore white with suffrage sashes and hats, carrying banners demanding a woman's suffrage amendment to the Constitution. They were accompanied by at least nine brass bands, 26 floats, and chariots representing the states that had already enfranchised women. But like the suffrage movement in general, the staggering accomplishment was marred by racism. Ida B. Wells Barnett was initially encouraged to represent her black Alpha Suffrage Club with the Illinois delegation. But at the last minute, buckling under pressure from eastern and southern women, the parade leaders told Ida and other black women that they could not march with the white delegates from their, from their states. They would have to march in the rear. Fuming, Ida left, but rather than march at the back, she returned to the sidelines. When her state delegation marched by, she slid in between two white friends, Bell Squire and Virginia Brooks, and boldly proclaimed, Illinois is Lincoln's state. We will not let Alabama or any other state dictate to it now. Many of the onlookers were drunk white men who hurled abusive, obscene language at the women threw things at them, assaulted them, ripped their banners and clothes, and pressed in on them until they had to walk single file. More than 100 suffragists were injured badly enough to need hospitalization. Though the women had a permit for the parade and were doing nothing illegal, the police just stood by and watched. Some Boy Scouts and college men tried to clear a way for the women, but in the end, federal troops had to intervene. And later, uh, there was a U.S. Senate hearing to figure out what had happened. The publicity aroused widespread public sympathy for the suffrage movement and outrage for the way the marchers had been treated. The movement splits over tactics. In February 1914, after several failed attempts to work together, Alice Paul's Congressional Union left the NAWSA Carrie Chapman Catt, president of the NAWSA, was committed to working strategically within the political system, whereas whereas Paul's newly formed National Woman's Party, the NWP, 
was committed to immediate suffrage via militant disruptive tactics. Cat and Paul had diametrically opposed ways of exerting pressure on Democratic President Woodrow Wilson. He believed that women's suffrage would make no difference in politics, but it would take women out of the home, which would be a disaster. He also needed the support of the southern states, which were adamantly opposed to a federal amendment as a threat to white supremacy. Historian Eleanor Flexner writes, quote, Behind the southern men were the activities of a small but highly articulate group of women passionately convinced that suffrage by the state route would prove a double blessing to them and their kind. It would enfranchise them, but in doing so, it would ensure white supremacy by doubling the white electorate. Black women voters would be no more difficult to deprive of their rights than black men had been. In fact, less so. Close quote. Katz's approach to President Wilson was persistent but polite political persuasion, including personal letters and dinners at the White House. Her strategy won Wilson's support for her state campaigns, and he even cast a pro-suffrage vote in New Jersey. Alice Paul, in contrast, employed, employed more strident methods of persuasion, though as a Quaker, she rejected violence. In April 1917, the United States declared war on Germany and entered World War I. Kat was a lifelong pacifist, but she was also a political pragmatist. Realizing that if suffragists refused to back their country during war, they could not expect their country to back them after the war. So she pledged support for the war effort from the two million members of the NAWSA. In doing so, she was expelled from the Women's Peace Party, which she had herself founded. (laughs) Alice Paul's National Women's Party, in contrast, offered no support for the war. Instead, Paul threw down the gauntlet. Starting on January, 7, January 10th, 1917, she stationed squads of silent sentinels outside the White House where they picketed in frigid weather, holding banners demanding the vote. Paul recruited anyone who would join them, including veteran suffragists and new recruits, nurses, teachers, Quakers, young college graduates, professional women, munitions workers, daughters and wives of prominent men, and African-American activists. Mary Church Terrell and her daughter risked arrest by occasionally joining the Sentinels. Nothing like this had ever been done outside the White House. Furious mobs, including police officers, tore their banners and clothes, attacked the women as unpatriotic traitors. Undaunted, Paul's army continued their single-minded daily protests month after month with inflammatory banners aimed at shaming President Wilson. When visiting Russian diplomats approached the White House, They had to pass large banners saying, to the Russian envoys, we are not a democracy since 20 20 million women can't vote. The government reacted to the peaceful, lawful picketing by arresting the sentinels. Given the choice of being fined or imprisoned, most women chose prison. They were beaten, fed maggot-ridden food, and slept on cots full of bedbugs. Paul endured solitary confinement and spent seven months in prison in the notorious Occoquan workhouse. On November 14, 1917, prison guards at Occoquan brutally beat and tortured 33 women. The night was remembered as the night of terror. As in England, the imprisoned suffragists resorted to hunger strikes and were force-fed a mixture of milk and raw eggs through a tube down their throats or noses. These brutal tactics backfired. 
extensive publicity led to a public outcry against the women's treatment. In late November 1917, they were released after a judge was informed that they were on the verge of complete collapse, too ill to even stand. And nobody wanted a dead suffragist on their hands. In 1918, a D.C. Court of Appeals ruled that the suffragists' arrests and imprisonments had been illegal. And now, Wilson's conversion. In early January 1918, during his second term in office, President Wilson finally urged Congress to pass a federal woman's suffrage amendment. On January 10, 1918, Representative Jeanette Rankin of Montana opened the debate in the House. She had been the first woman elected to Congress. The amendment passed with exactly the two-thirds majority required for passing a constitutional amendment. Four men literally left sick beds to be able to cast their votes. One could barely stand. One was carried in on a stretcher. Another postponed having a broken arm and shoulder set. And Representative Hicks of New York left his wife's deathbed to vote aye and then returned home for her funeral. She had been a passionate suffragist. Without those four votes, the amendment would not have passed. Once the bedlam had died down and the outcome was sure, Flexner writes, quote, a voice out in the corridor began to sing Old Hundred, the doxology. Others took it up, and the familiar hymn echoed through the marble capitol. However, the Senate proved more intractable than the House and failed to pass the amendment. Both Paul and Kat claimed credit for Wilson's conversion and for victory in the House. In fact, both approaches played significant roles. Under Kat's military-style, highly disciplined winning plan, state after state was won by dogged, relentless campaigns. As more states enfranchised women, their votes increased the pressure on electors to pass a federal amendment. And in contrast to Paul's militant tactics, Kat appeared moderate and reasonable. At the same time, Alice Paul had shed an embarrassing light on President Wilson's hypocrisy. Approaching the end of the war, he desperately wanted a leading voice informing the peace to, quote, make the world safe for democracy, unquote. Yet America was a poor model of democracy as one half of the population was still denied the vote, while women in Russia, the United Kingdom, and Germany were already enfranchised. By this time, it was also clear to Wilson that his Democratic Party would lose control of Congress if they opposed the suffrage amendment, so he finally put his full vote behind it. On September 30th, 1918, with the end of war in sight, Wilson made an eloquent appeal to the Senate to pass the suffrage amendment. This is what he said. We have made partners of the women in this war. Shall we admit them only to a partnership of suffering and sacrifice and toil, and not to a partnership of privilege and right? This war could not have been fought if it had not been for the services of the women. Services rendered in every sphere, including wherever men have worked, and upon the very skirts and edges of the battle itself. Women's contribution to the war effort was indisputable. In Harriet Stanton Blatch's words, when men go a-warring, women go to work. Among other things, they worked in munition plants and oil refineries. They manufactured steel, armaments, high explosives, railway automobile, and airplane parts. They smelted and refined metals. They produced uniforms in textile mills and joined government organizations in charge of the war effort. 
Katz, NAWSA, maintained and financed a field hospital, field hospital in France and provided nursing staff. With her encouragement, women grew and preserved food and sold liberty bonds. In spite of Wilson's efforts, the suffrage amendment lost in the Senate again, falling short of the required two-thirds majority by just two, two votes. Over one-half of the nays came from Southern Democrats who held out in the name of states' rights. A federal amendment would give all women the right to vote, whereas individual states would have the power to enfranchise only white women. In the words of Senator, a senator from Mississippi, quote, it will be the end of white supremacy if black women get the vote, unquote. Part of the fear of Southerners was that a federal suffrage amendment might lead to enforcement of the 14th Amendment, which had enfranchised black men but never been enforced. The 19th Amendment passes. Both Kat and Paul were ready to compromise with the South to win suffrage for white women, but African-American suffragists refused to be sidelined. Kat begged Elizabeth Carter, president of the 6,000-member Northeast Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, to withdraw its application to the overwhelmingly white NAWSA. Carter agreed, but only on the condition that the amendment stand as originally written with no modifications. On May 21, 1919, the House passed the amendment for the second time. The second vote was necessary as too much time had elapsed without the Senate passing it. Two weeks later, on June 4, 1919, the Senate passed it by a narrow margin. The 19th Amendment passed exactly as written by Susan B. Anthony 40 years earlier. It enfranchised all women with no reference to race. This time, there was no singing. The women had to rush home and resume campaigning in order to win ratification by the required three-quarters of the states. Now to the hair-raising finale. By early summer of 1920, 35 of the necessary 36 states had ratified the Women's Suffrage Amendment. For women to have any chance of voting in the 1920 presidential election, the governor of one more state would have to call a special legislative session. Under pressure from President Wilson, the governor of Tennessee agreed to do it. Pro-suffrage and anti-suffrage forces, reporters and lobbyists, descended on Nashville to prepare for the highly charged vote. People made their views known in marches, protests, and heated debates. Carrie Chapman Catt settled herself in the Hermitage Hotel weeks before the scheduled session to organize support for the amendment. Tennessee suffragists fanned out to every town and province to convince legislators to vote aye. But the opposition was fierce. Undeterred by prohibition, the anti-suffrage forces opened the Jack Daniel, Daniel Suite on the eighth floor of the Hermitage Hotel, a speakeasy that served liquor day and night to legislators. Plied with alcohol, arguments, bribes, and threats, men who had pledged support for suffrage wavered, and some went back on their earlier promises. After fierce debate, the Tennessee Senate voted to ratify the amendment on August 10th with a majority of 25 to 4. The House of Representatives proved more obstinate. Opponents managed to delay the vote for more than a week. Finally, on August 18th, after a three-and-a-half-hour debate, the amendment was moved to a vote. The suffragists sat in the galleries wearing yellow roses. 
the anti-suffragists were there as well, wearing red roses. It became known as the Nashville War of the Roses. (laughs) Until the very end, it appeared certain that the amendment would fall short by two votes. And then, to everyone's astonishment, 24-year-old Harry Byrne, the youngest member of the legislature, voted aye. He represented a strongly anti-suffrage rural district, wore a red rose, and was expected to vote nay. But earlier that morning, a page had handed Harry a letter from his mother, Phoebe Ensminger Byrne. These are the words that tipped the balance for women's rights. These are the words that his mother wrote him. Hooray and vote for suffrage. Don't keep them in doubt. I've been waiting to see how you stood, but have not seen anything yet. Don't forget to be a good boy and help Mrs. Cat. (laughs) With lots of love, Mama. (laughs) Harry Burns' vote brought the tally to dead even. And then there was another surprise. 30-year-old Banks P. Turner, who was also expected to oppose the amendment, announced his vote in favor. Unable to bear the suspense, Carrie Cat had waited in the hotel until she heard the uproar from across the street. Outside the State House, Harry Byrne briefly congratulated Banks Turner and the suffragists while fleeing from the torrent of insults through a window in the clerk's room from his anti-suffrage colleagues. In response to attacks on his integrity, he wrote this personal explanation in the House Journal. Quote, I knew that a mother's advice is always safest for a boy to follow, and my mother wanted me to vote for ratification. (laughs) Amazing story. There's a lot of drama in the story. The anti-suffrage forces tried unsuccessfully to get the vote overturned. On August 18, 1920, the 19th Amendment to the Federal Constitution, known as the Anthony Amendment, was signed into law. It read exactly as Susan B. Anthony had written it. The right of citizens of the United States to vote shall not be denied or abridged by the United States or by any state on account of the sex. Six days later, the Secretary of State certified the 19th Amendment, enfranchising about 27 million American women. Alice Paul sewed the last star under her ratification flag and hung it from the headquarters of the National Women's Party in Washington, D.C., and church bells tolled all across America. One-third of the eligible women voted in the November 1920 presidential election. Although black women were free to vote in some states, they continued to be barred from the polls for decades in other states. Georgia did not ratify the 19th Amendment until 1970, and Mississippi followed in 1984. Well, a summary of the long ruling battle. Carrie Chapman Catt wrote this computation of the human effort spent by women to win the vote. Quote, to get the word male in effect out of the Constitution cost the women of this country 52 years of pauseless campaign. During that time, they were forced to conduct 56 campaigns of referenda to male voters, 480 campaigns to get legislatures to submit suffrage amendments to voters, 47 campaigns to get state constitutional conventions to write women's suffrage into state constitutions, 277 campaigns to get state party conventions to include women's suffrage planks, 
30 campaigns to get presidential party conventions to adopt women's suffrage planks in party platforms, and 19 campaigns with 19 successive Congresses. To put this in context, women accomplished all this during a world war and an influenza, influenza pandemic in every season and weather condition and with a terribly broken transportation system. There's nothing else like this in American history. The unrelenting fight for so long for one goal. It's worth considering, spending a little time considering why the opposition was so strong and prolonged. We'll look at several reasons. The first, separate sphere arguments. The first debate on women's suffrage in the United States took place in the United States Senate took place in 1866. From then on, there were frequent emotional appeals to God-given gender differences and fear-based predictions of gender war. For example, Senator Freulenhausen of New Jersey argued, the God of our race has stamped upon the women of America a milder, gentler nature, which not only makes them shrink from, but disqualifies them from the turmoil and battle of public life. They have a higher and holier mission. Their mission is in the home, to assuage the passions of men as they come in from the battle of life, and not to add fuel to the flames. Similarly, Senator Williams of Oregon argued from God's creation that husbands and wives, quote, interests are one, and the woman who undertakes by the use of some independent political power to contend and fight against man displays a spirit which would, if able, convert all the now harmonious elements of society into a state of war and make every home a hell on earth. Fear-based arguments piled up even as women gained the vote state by state and did not vote against men, making every home a hell on earth. Civilization did not collapse, and married women voted along party lines, most often with their husbands. To separate sphere argument, the separate sphere arguments also ignored the considerable population of unmarried women who, like everyone else, voted along party lines to further their own interests. As abundant as women's proper sphere arguments were, Eleanor Flexner argues that they could not account for the animus that expressed itself in a highly organized and articulate form against women as voters, becoming increasingly intemperate as women's suffrage spread slowly from one state to another. Carrie Chapman Catt describes the intense hostility she experienced in Nashville in the weeks approaching the the decisive Tennessee vote. She wrote, I was more maligned, excuse me, more lied about than in the 30 years, previous years I have worked for suffrage. I was flooded with anonymous letters, vulgar, ignorant, insane. Strange men and groups of men sprang up. Even tricksters from the U.S. Revenue Service were there operating against us until the President of the United States called them off. They appropriated our telegraphs, tapped our telephones, listened outside our windows and transoms. They attacked our private and public lives. The opposition differed in different parts of the country. White supremacy in the South was a big one for the South. As I've already pointed out, white Southerners, both men and women, fought the women's suffrage amendment for fear that it would challenge their Jim Crow system that ensured white supremacy. There were also liquor and brewing interests uh, that were formidable enemies of women's suffrage, especially in the Midwest. 
There had been an historic alliance between suffragists and temperance reformers who were working to protect wives from drunken husbands who beat them and spent all their wages on alcohol. The liquor, the liquor industry used underhanded tactics to defeat women's suffrage. They bribed, threatened, and pressured legislators, tampered in elections, and bought editorial support. They tried to keep their anti-suffrage activities secret for reasons revealed in a letter from a Milwaukee brewing concern which stated, quote, it is most dangerous to have the retailers identified or active in any way in this fight as it will be used against us everywhere. In fact, anti-suffrage women's groups were a front for liquor interests. Then there were political machines and business interests. As with separate sphere arguments and liquor interests, belief in women's difference was behind the opposition of political machines and business interests. The association of true womanhood with superior morals and incorruptibility combined with the reformist zeal of women's suffragists struck fear in the hearts of political bosses and many business leaders. Economic interests were paramount. If women got the vote, politicians might have to improve schools and sewage systems. Wherever suffrage was up for any kind of legislative action, action, anti-suffrage lobbyists were present, representing railroad, steel, oil, general manufacturing, and banking interests. Meat packers made secret contributions to anti-suffrage groups. The reasons? Because women reformers were working to abolish child labor. They were fighting for humane hours and working conditions, fair wages, and protective legislation for women workers. If women got the vote, they might succeed, which would be costly to these businesses. Concluding reflections. In the process of researching the story of how American women got enfranchised, excuse me, a sip of water, In doing this research, I became aware for the first time of many suffragists I'd never heard of. African Americans, Chinese Americans, Latin Americans, Mexican Americans, and Native Americans. Given the scope of this talk, I could not begin to do them credit. I've chosen to include a number of African American women because of their enormous uphill contributions to the rights of all American women, as well as to their own people, against the backdrop of slavery, Jim Crow, and the racism of white suffragists. For them, the suffrage battle was far from one with the passing of the 19th Amendment. By 1920, the Ku Klux Klan had experienced a resurgence and posted signs in Miami and elsewhere warning, quote, beware, the Ku Klux Klan is alive again, and every Negro who approaches a polling station next Tuesday will be a marked man. The threat was clearly intended for black women as well. <clears throat> the night before the landmark election of November 1920, a local branch of the Ku Klux Klan showed up at the girls' school in Daytona, Florida, founded by Mary McLeod Bethune. They were there to scare her and her students away from the polls the next day. With her arms folded, Mary faced them down, singing the hymn, be not dismayed whate'er betide, God will take care of you. Perhaps shamed by her faith, courage, and determination, the Ku Klux Klan dispersed. And along with 10 million other American women, 
Mary Bethune cast her vote the next morning. She would become known as the First Lady of Black America. In describing her lifelong mission, she said, quote, We have fought for America with all her imperfections, not so much for what she is, but for what we know she can become. I don't know how many more times Mary Bethune was able to cast her ballot because numerous methods of voter intimidation succeeded in disenfranchising black voters for decades to come. The work of black suffragists was inseparable from the struggles of civil rights activists, whose efforts eventually led to the Voting Rights Act of 1965. In her Atlantic article, More Than the Vote, Deborah Cohen describes this scene. On a hot day in August 1965, this is after the Voting Rights Act had passed, A local photographer captured 68-year-old Joe Ella Moore dressed in a beribboned straw hat registering to vote. This was Moore's eighth attempt. On each of her seven previous tries, Mississippi authorities had turned her away. African Americans are not the only group that have been prevented from exercising their right to vote. Native Americans were not recognized as citizens until the Snyder Act, or Indian Citizenship Act of 1924. But many Native Americans were barred from voting until 1962, when Utah became the last state to give them full voting rights. The Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882 prevented Chinese immigrants from becoming citizens until it was repealed in 1943. Only then could Chinese American men and women exercise the right to vote. Under pressure from the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Educational Fund, Congress passed a law in 1975 to protect Mexican-Americans and other minority groups from exclusionary tactics that had kept them from the polls for decades. Most white people seemed to believe that giving women the vote would change everything. While opponents predicted the collapse of marriage and society, many suffragists had utopian dreams of a world without war, poverty, or gender inequality. But Mary Mary Bethune, like most black suffragists, had no such illusions. They knew that the battle for gender and racial equality was not over. The fallen human propensity to abuse power, predicted in Genesis 3.16, was not going to disappear with the passing of the 19th Amendment. That text predicted the abuse of male power over women, but the Bible and subsequent history give us plenty of evidence for women's capacity to abuse power as well. The black American experience predisposed black suffragists to more realism about what the passing of a federal amendment would and would not accomplish. It appears that assuring voting rights to all eligible voters is a continuing challenge today. According to the Brennan Brennan Center for Justice, during the 2021 legislative session, at least 389 bills aimed to restrict access to voting have been introduced in 48 states. As of June 21st, 2021, just a week or so ago, 17 states had enacted 28 new laws that restrict voting access. These laws would disproportionately affect all low-income Americans, especially minority Americans, but also white low-income Americans, making it more difficult for them to exercise their fundamental right as citizens to vote. The laws are being challenged, and the outcome is not certain. Another serious concern is that many election officials, both Republicans and Democrats, have quit because they have been stalked, threatened, and attacked for trying to do their jobs. 
just in this last year. Our democracy depends on these public servants feeling safe and appreciated for the crucial work they do. We need to pray for justice, work for justice, and pray for God's mercy on our country. Finally, if you take nothing else from this lecture, I will leave you with a final exhortation. Hear me now, as our pastor would say. (laughs) Reverend Lloyd, thank you. If you are eligible, be sure you register to vote and be sure you vote. And do what you can to protect the voting rights of your fellow Americans. That's where I'll end. And I have covered a lot of ground fast. But now there's a chance for discussion from those in the room and also from those on Zoom. And I'm not sure what I meant. Am I meant to do something with the screen now? No. I don't have to do anything? Okay. Okay. How do I get to see who's on the who's on Zoom? Stop. Okay. Do I escape first of all? I think he said to escape and then stop to share. Oh yeah. Okay. Thank you. Hi, Ruby Bishop, Charles, Mary Bashir. Ah, oh, lots of people. Good to see you. So, any questions or comments anyone wants to make? If not yet, I will tell you a backstory that I cut out. <laughs> I had to cut a page out. I was trying to shorten this. But there was an important backstory to the final vote in Nashville that I was going to leave in, and then I thought I'd better take it out. And if, there's, if no one asks a question immediately, then I'll, I'll tell you the story. In April of 1919, so this was just months before the ratification of the 19th Amendment, the Tennessee legislature had granted women the right to vote. Black and white suffragists realized the importance of getting women out to the polls for local elections that spring because they wanted to demonstrate that women who could vote would vote. Thankfully, at this critical moment, wisdom won over racism, and the white suffrage leader, Catherine Talty Kenny took the unprecedented step of asking a black leader, Juno Frankie Pierce, who was president of the Nashville Federation of Colored Women's Clubs, if they could work together to get out the vote. For Frankie, this offered an important bargaining opportunity. She agreed if the white woman women would agree to support the equal treatment of black and white girls who got in trouble with the law, then she would work with them. At that time in Tennessee, black girls who got in trouble with the law were sent to jail, whereas white girls were sent to vocational schools. Throughout the summer, white and, white and black women worked together with black churches and other organizations under the leadership of Frankie and Dr. Maddie E. Coleman, an African-American physician. They registered over 17,000 women voters, one-third of whom were black. On May 18, 1920, at Catherine's invitation, Frankie spoke at the first meeting of the League of Women Voters of Tennessee. Addressing a rapt audience, she said, quote, We are interested in the same moral uplift of the community in which we live as you are. We're asking only one thing, a square deal. We want recognition in all forms of government, We want a state vocational school and a child welfare department of the state and more room in state schools. 
Frankie won the support of the white women, and three years later, the Tennessee Vocational School for Colored Girls opened in Nashville with Frankie as superintendent. This is one of the one of the other stories where where you saw integrated work, suffrage work, really bearing fruit. Now, if there's any discussion, <laughs> I got to tell you my 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 backstory. Yes. I just have a question, if you might know. The family members that followed the women of the different decades and centuries, two centuries, did the families continue to pursue that? Did it keep rolling, in other words? Or was there like a momentum? Um, that is a good question, and I'm not... <clears throat> I mean, I don't want to put you on the spot. No, no. I'm, I mean, I'm not a historian, and I worked a lot on this area. I, I do know, I mean, I have read a little bit into the next, the next period, which is there was something of a, of a letdown for a while, of, um, um, well, when the, when the, at the first, Seneca Falls, the first women's rights convention, it was very broad in terms of their aims. Not just, in fact, suffrage, Elizabeth Cady Stanton felt um, very felt that suffrage was really important, but she was in a minority. In fact, the suffrage, the the um, uh, that part, there was sort of different parts, the things that they were aiming for, and the suffrage part was was the only one that wasn't unanimously um, voted on by the women at that meeting. So, um, but obviously, momentum for suffrage built. Um, but by the time the NAWSA was formed, it was really like a, it was a one plank. It was all out for suffrage. Um, so there were things that were going on at the same during the during those during the 19th century. For example, um, women worked to end wife abuse, wife battering, which was still legal in every state until like 1870s or something. I can't can't remember the exact date dates when it was, or maybe it was a little earlier. Um, Married Women's Property Act. Mar- married women weren't allowed to own property until the first Married Women's Property Act. So there were those things that were happening. There were gains. By after, ni- after 1920, when women gained the vote, there was something of a sort of letdown, at least publicly. There were still feminists working, um, but not as publicly and not not in in the same kind of organized way, as far as I under- understand. I'm still reading up on that part. Was, as you were yeah. discussing it, I was thinking... Yeah. There okay, definitely were people... Sti- it, kind of it, it sort of, you know, they, this was something that they worked so hard for. And as I said, there were quite a few people, especially white people, not so much black people, who were quite naive in their hopes of what suffrage would do. Um, you know, that this is this going to solve all our problems. Well, it didn't solve all their problems, which is why there was a second wave feminism and third wave feminism, and many feminists, those are, those get more complicated, but first wave feminism is a lot more clear overlap with Christian principles. And then, um, second wave feminism, which is 1970s, um, third wave, more like into the 90s, and on, and there's multiple feminisms where there are points of, of, of intersection with the Christian faith and points of real, real difference. So, so feminism, you know, everything was not accomplished by by the Nineteenth Amendment. Not, not just feminism, but just families. You know, yep. belief systems change. And yep. Obviously. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but I can't tell you about like the children and grandchildren yeah, of, of those folks. Is you know the people that I talked about, Thank as to what. Although I was 
interested to learn about and very glad to learn about Harriet Stanton Blatch's, um, you know, her how she stood against her mother's sort of snobbery and worked to bring together um, working class women and union women and, uh, and yeah, all sorts of women, which was very necessary for to actually make progress. Yeah. In, in, in the in the Seneca Falls the beginning, there was a lot of interest in the reform of marriage too. Wasn't there? Oh yeah. Uh, one of the yeah. main issues, other than suffrage. Yes, uh, marriage reform was a huge, a huge part of concern of um, first wave feminism. When I say first wave feminism, it's first wave feminism is 19th century feminism basically, and up say up to uh, the passing of the 19th Amendment. But um, the colonists brought with them the common law of what was called couverture. This came from British common law, which stated that when a, when a woman married, she basically lost her civic identity. She was subsumed under her husband, lost her civic identity, lost her right to own property, lost her right to, um, to her children. Um, couldn't write, sign contracts, couldn't write wills. She basically um, lost civic identity altogether. And she also had no rights over her body. Um, wife beating was legal. And, um, and again, she, women couldn't own property. They couldn't even own their own earnings. They lost their earnings that they, had, that, that they had before they married their husband. Everything went to their husband. And so the law of couverture was, that was, that was uh, really being fought by first wave, wave feminists, um, but by by tackling specific issues like wife beating and um, the married women's married the right of married women to own property, and those things that gradually they gradually gained you know gained those things state by state basically. I think it was only oh, I can't remember. I've got this is in a chapter that I've worked on in my book, but I can't remember the exact date. But it was. Only around 1900, when I think every state allowed women um, to own married women to own property. Oh, somebody has just corrected my, um, that's great, corrected my pronunciation, McLeod. Pronunciation of McLeod sounds like McLeod. Thank you. Thank you, Monica. <laughs> so, Marty, I can't see that chat. I don't know oh. what's going on, so you'll have to, underneath it, you'll just have to read it out loud. Okay. People like Elliot. All right. Elliot has a question. Has a question. He, all, right, how, all right, how do I do this? You just, just read just, it just out read loud. Oh, I just read it. Okay, let me see. Okay, Mona, thank you. Good. Um, if we say that voting is a fundamental right, what would be the theological basis for that right? For example, non-citizens don't have the right to vote. Um, what would be the theological basis for the right? What would you say, Dick? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, a lot goes back to, I would say, to 
what it means to be the image of God and the idea of the consent of the governed, um, which, which was sort of instrumental in the Declaration of Independence, the idea that, that at least in a democracy, the governed uh, have the right to consent to the laws that they stand under. But Dick's done a lot of work on that. Most Christians in Christian history have never had any vote for anything. Right. So it can't be the most fundamental human right Mm -hmm. to to life that is is, uh, said if someone takes a human life, their life is forfeit in in Genesis. So it can't be as fundamental a right as the right to life. so most most Christians have, in, throughout history, I don't know about numbers, because there's a lot more Christians today than there have been in past generations, but but um, have lived under monarchies. Right. There are all sorts of high high level uh, um, leadership that paid no attention to the general population. Mm-hmm. So the, the starting of America was. Uh, extraordinary mm-hmm. and a very daring thing. It's totally, in many ways, very flawed mm-hmm. because of how incomplete it was. But the ideas were, uh, as I was saying, we, I talked a little bit about the Fourth of July this last week, and, and it starts. The special paragraph in the Declaration starts off saying, "We hold these truths to be self-evident." Mm-hmm. What absolute rubbish! Mm-hmm. No, was, there was no government on earth that was framed in this, that was run in this way. At this point in time, uh, there's precious few people believed in that idea at all. That all people are endowed by special rights and so forth mm-hmm. uh, by, by God. But, but uh, I think the ground here would be well, if there'd be, there's no ground, theological ground, to separate anybody from having the right to do this. If, if rights are there for the land, who are you to say that it's these people, not those people, who get that right? Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I think the the, uh, the 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 right would be go, going back to the, each person has we're, we're created to have dominion, to have mastery over our lives, and voting is part of our dominion, it's part of our control we have over our futures. It's amazing and a very new, modern, special phenomenon that there has been such a thing as the consent of the governed would be yeah. a significant part of this. But in this in this. Uh, uh, Post uh, the, the, the life of democracy that's been framed this way, a republic that's been framed this way, um, that blessing is, is laid out, which is a great break to tyranny, mm-hmm. a great break against all the the uh, factors that have made people's lives miserable through centuries uh, and, and limited them to possibilities. But if, if, as long as that's there, why would you prohibit it from re- reaching anyone? That there's no, uh, there's no. Everybody's made in the image of God. There's no basis of distinguishing, saying these people are of less value or less uh, intelligent or less anything. Uh, the 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 the, the, um, the whole thing is is that it's uh, it, it's for everyone who's made in the image of God. If it's this blessing that's rooted in who we are as, as images of God. Yeah, and I was just thinking, um, I've, I've noticed, I've sort of looked for in reading the Bible, references to rights. And there are references to rights in the Bible, which I've written in the back of my Bible. <laughs> it would take me a while to find them. 
but it, it's, it, it always tends to be that it's, God cares about protecting the rights of those who would, might otherwise be oppressed. There's a lot about that in the Bible and a lot about justice and, and so, and a, a great source of oppression is when some people can vote and other people can't. Um, when some people, with those people, you know, with, with power, with property can vote and those people who don't have power and property are not allowed to vote is a source of the kind of oppression that the Bible speaks against over and over again. The prophets speak against it over and over again. And there are quite quite a number of references using the word right, talking about rights, the rights of the poor. And so, you know, if you're going to have anyone vote, voting, anyone having rights, then it needs to be, it should be everyone. I, yeah. I, I don't want to redo some of the things I was saying the other, the other night, but... but um, uh, people have looked at the, 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 the phrase "consent of the governed," which is virtually out of Locke's second, uh, the second thing he wrote on, on politics, political uh, writing, and, and uh, as if it was Locke's special invention uh, of the Enlightenment and so on. Whereas, in fact, historians more recently have said, "Well, actually, this is in the Bible. The covenants in the Bible, originated by God." Again and again, you see in, in Exodus and Leviticus, uh, he asked, okay, are you willing to do this to the people? And they respond, yes, we will do that. And, and, uh, and then, then, only then is the covenant ratified. Uh, so God looks to the people for the consent of the governed uh, of all extraordinary things back in the biblical covenants uh, in, a, in a way that isn't this quite the same as a voting situation. Uh, but it's, it's the same idea that uh, the, the covenant is only ratified not as a, as a um, it's only ratified as a bilateral arrangement between the one who, who, who dictates the terms and the, the people who are willing to follow it and it's everybody, the whole population was meant to respond, not just men or not just men over 20 or whatever was meant to respond, uh, yes we will obey, mm-hmm. we'll do it, which, they, which of course they didn't, but, but uh, that's that's in the in the whole story of the Bible. Mm-hmm. That'd be an interesting application of yeah. that idea. There's a comment here. Um, the rule of thumb comes from the rule that a man could beat his wife with a rod as long as it was not thicker than his thumb. Um, I have come across that. There's some question about that, um, uh, but there is there does seem to be some historical basis. For, for that. But I wanted to say about wife beating, because this was some, something that I learned in my research, which I was really very happy to learn, is that actually the Puritans of New England, the Massachusetts Bay Colony right here, were the first people in known history to make laws against wife beating and against abnormal cruelty to children. And um, there, there's no other known laws anywhere uh, until, until um, the Puritans of New England made of Massachusetts Bay colony made those <clears throat> those laws um, there were even though couverture the law of couverture allowed um, wife beating there were it's not as if no husbands were ever um, prosecuted for beating their wives but it wasn't because they were wife beaters it was it was under like the category of assault and battery uh, so there were there were cases however there was also it was quite common when wife-beating cases came up in, in American history 
for courts to decide. Um, there was this sort of phrase, um, close the veil, you know, have a curtain um, uh, protecting family privacy. Let the couple work it out themselves. But that ignored the incredible differential of power and the fact that husbands had a lot more power over their wives and wives had no recourse um, um, you know, to do anything about it. So that, that, that was a real, a real issue and a real problem. Did someone, yeah? Um, so persuasion is an interesting topic, and you were talking about Kat and Paul, and yeah. their methodologies were different. And, but it seemed that there was a really important interplay mm-hmm. where Woodrow Wilson was in constant communication with Kat while um, <laughs> Mrs. Paul, or Miss Paul, I don't know, Miss. she was making a, a scene yeah. that was, and it's almost as if without Paul, we wouldn't have had that follow through with by Woodrow Wilson. And so what the thing that you ended the um, lecture with was the call to vote and to protect the right to vote for mm. those who are yeah. American citizens and or Americans. Mm. And so I always like to take it to how does this affect me today yeah. or us today? How do I take put this into action? Mm-hmm. Um, are both of those persuasive techniques necessary? Are they both permissible? Are mm-hmm. they both? <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> where the rubber meets the road today, what does that look like? Um, what can we advocate for? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Good question. Um, <laughs> I'll throw that out there. Yeah, no, the, the comment or question was about um, the two approaches of both Alice Paul and Carrie Catt. Um, Carrie Catt, who was working very much within the system trying to win President Wilson <clears throat> um, to her side, and while Paul was demonstrating throwing down the gauntlet, embarrassing him. And I, I think both, appro- I mean, I think, I think you're right. I think both people, scholars in this, think both approaches were actually really necessary um, to the final outcome. And I, I don't see any problem with, with both. Different people, are, their personalities are gonna, going to um, tend to make us approach things one way or the other. But Alice Paul didn't break the law. Um, she didn't, she didn't, I mean, the, the British suffragists, where she sort of got one to the cause, one over the cause, were, were much more violent. She was never violent. Um, again, she was, a, she was a Quaker and didn't believe in violence. Um, but the idea of, um, of picketing, I mean, that's, we're allowed to picket. That's not against the law. They, um, they suffered for it. You know, they were thrown in prison and and suffered in all kinds of ways, but embarrassing, I don't think see anything wrong with trying to embarrass a public figure who is um, who is behaving like a hypocrite. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I think both, go, go ahead, Dick, what were you going to say? Yeah, Martin Luther King is an interesting yeah. illustration because he was totally commitment, committed against a lot of resistance to nonviolence, mm-hmm. but huge amount of persuasion, unbelievably articulate persuasion, right. and yet civil disobedience. He disobeyed all over the place, knew he was doing it, and, and accepted punishment. He was in, went to jail a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it, it's interesting, he, he in, in a sense encapsulates both sides mm-hmm. of, of, of commitment to nonviolence, and yet... And yet uh, An incredible persuasive power. Pers- persuasion and love. I mean, he, he, yep. he really wouldn't, wouldn't resort to just... Uh, 
name calling at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but, but uh, marched when they told him he wasn't allowed to march, uh, and, and so forth. So that would be similar to the syndicates, right? Is that the name for them? Oh, all the sentinels. Sentinels, yes. The sentinel, yeah. Yes. The silent sentinels, because they didn't talk. They just held banners. They, they just, they just stood out there in freezing cold winter. And, uh, and, you know, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think both, you know, both were, um, both contributed. But it is amazing. It is amazing how strong the opposition was for so long. And to, and I mean, I made, I made references a couple times to this this idea of woman's difference because that was a, you know, what I'm doing in this book I'm, that I'm trying to work on very slowly is to our, the first section of the book is historical, just looking at why did feminism happen, and my basic argument is that starting back with the Greeks and all the way, and the Greeks' influence on the New Testament and um, and the Church Fathers and Western culture, um, the woman's difference has been abused. So men and women are different, but men and women are also alike in the most basic ways. As Dorothy Sayers says, why do we say the opposite sex? Why not the neighboring sex? Men and women have more in common as human beings than anything else in creation. And um, But Aristotle's view that difference meant, women's difference meant inferiority, meant subordination, meant Inferior in every respect. Women, women were misbegotten males, basically, in body, soul, spirit, in every way. And that, that came, that has influenced Western history, um, in many ways ever since, including many of the early church fathers who, who were trained in, their studies were in classics, classical education. They learned Aristotle. Um, and they, so many of them had a sort of unholy mixture of the Bible and, um, and Aristotle. And and I'm very thankful for them because they, you know, we still have the Christian faith today because of the faithfulness of of these guides of Augustine and, and others. But but they they had some blind spots and were influenced by Aristotle when it came to to women. I mean, Augustine even Calvin talked about um, women not being the image of God in the same way men are, and that that view comes from Aristotle does not come from the Bible. And and uh, and so this uh, the history of the abuse of gender difference when you you trace it through with this, uh, the law of couverture, um, women losing their civic identity uh, when they marry and becoming that's what the two become one meant the two become the husband <laughs> not the mystery Paul talks about a mystery <clears throat> of two becoming one that's um, this mysterious union that doesn't that doesn't um, subjugate one to the other <clears throat> or lose the identity uh, of, of one over the, one to the other. But um, <clears throat> that's what, what, you know, by the time the 19th century came along, people, women were, w- women were, were fed up and, you know, the, just hungry to learn, hungry to pursue education. But this idea of separate spheres, which was, which was, um, I've referred to a few times in here, uh, as part of the arguments against women voting, is that this idea that there's separate spheres for men and women. And that really developed much more in the 19th century after the Industrial Revolution when work left the home. Because when work was in the home, men and women both did economic work 
together from the home with varieties of divisions of labor. Men and women together raised children from the home. They did economic work. In fact, the word for the econ- economy in Greek is the same, it's the same root from, um, or the, root, the word for household in Greek is, comes from the same root as the economy, because the household was the basis of the economy until industrialization, industrialization took work out of the home. And then there was, ah, pa- you know, panic. What do we do? Work's taken out of the home. We need someone in the home. And for the middle classes who could afford to keep someone at home, this whole idea of, of, of separate spheres, women's places in the home, women stays, stays home and, and keeps the hearth, and she was... <clears throat> Women were defined as the angel of the home. You, you could get that feeling in those quotes from those guys um, who, who are arguing against women voting. But it is really, really is pretty weird when you think that panicked at the idea of women putting a ballot in a box once a year or something, as if that's going to <laughs> destroy their femininity, destroy the home, destroy marriage. Um, there were some, there are some arguments and cartoons and so on arguing against um, women in the workplace or women getting involved in in politics at all. Um, you know, cartoons showing a woman suddenly giving birth when she's in, uh, you know, in a court courtroom as if women have no, you know, as if giving birth just comes upon you suddenly with no warning while you're out to work, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Things that struck me. One question about the opposition there, just following on from what's been said. Mm-hmm. Um, so, UN Security Council Resolution 1325 was re- uh, passed, ratified in I think 2013 around then. The first UN Security Council resolution to acknowledge women's role in conflict. Um, mm. It is the most debated, most resisted and most voted against Security Council resolution in the whole of the Security Council history. So that opposition that you're talking about is not historical. It exists now. Mm -hmm, Yeah. Oh, yes. I wonder, and from Western countries as well, we're not just talking conservative, um, say, Islamic countries or or other countries with with more conservative uh, views, perhaps. So I just, I wonder, speaking to this idea of where does that opposition come from, aside from the business interests? So that that zero-sum idea of power mm-hmm. still very, very prominent, I think, globally, the idea that if you give women some power, then men will lose yeah. power, right? And then, so just a, just a thought, just reminding you when you talk about this opposition. And the other question I had, or just thought I have, was about um, the recency and the violence, the continuance and the, the violence of struggle mm-hmm. in our democracies. Mm-hmm. Given that, given its persistence, why do we still hold this idea of democracy as a kind of rosy hue? Like what, what, what makes us forget mm-hmm. the, re- the, the, the violence and the struggle that we experience even today, even mm-hmm. last year? You know, what, mm-hmm. It seems to me very incongruent mm-hmm. that we hold this Think of the idea of what democracy is, mm-hmm. and we try and promote it elsewhere. Mm-hmm. When 
our struggles are so very recent and so very violent here. Yeah. Yes. On that one, <clears throat> Dick, Dick's done much more work. Dick could say something <laughs> quite good on that. Um, but, I mean, he, he made, he's made the point. He just gave a, gave a talk here a couple nights ago. And just talking about democracy itself, the actual meaning of the word democracy is literally, it's a mathematical thing. It's, it's 51%. It's majority rule, meaning 51%. Versus 49 percent is a, is a democrat, democratic rule. But what you what you need for democracy to work, for democracy to to function in a good way, is you need a consensus. You need a shared consensus of values, which our country used to have more of, and is having less and less of. And as a consensus of values that come from outside, you know, from more transcendent values from outside. As there isn't that shared consensus of values, democracy doesn't it doesn't hold. And, and you're, you're, you know a lot more about this than I do, but about the absurdity of America trying to um, export democracy to all sorts of places where it's completely unworkable because there isn't there isn't a where there isn't a consensus of values that that could make a democracy work. Or, I mean, we, we don't have, we have a democratic republic, which isn't even, it's not a pure democracy in this, like, like just majority rule. You know, we, we elect representatives. Um, everybody can, can, citizens can vote, but we elect representatives to make decisions and so on. But the idea that you can just import some idea of democracy, I mean, export it. Um, well, you know all about Afghanistan. Um, a lot. Yeah. But I said, being it's in a tribal in a tribal culture like Afghanistan, do you think democracy can work, yes, Anna? I do absolutely, but that's a, that's a different. Okay, I'd love to hear you on that. But then, how do you define democracy? Yeah, yeah. There's lots of yeah. But I go to your first to your first question. I actually, I actually think the problem goes back to Genesis three sixteen. In fact, and I think, I mean, it's something that feminists from every school of feminists have wrestled with for, you know, forever. Why? Uh, why is women's oppression so, um, um, so endemic everywhere? And the global violence against women today is enormous all over the world, you know, and, and, um, this book, amazing book by Elaine Storkey called Scars Against Humanity on the, on the global problem of violence against women. And she's, do- I mean, it would be a really hard book to doc- to, to have written because she did so much research and documented and went everywhere and just saw how, um, it's just built into culture after culture after culture. And we have a huge amount of the, you know, the, the position, the fact that women are, are as respected as we are here has a lot to do with our Christian What's come from Christianity in the past? What's um, Christian foundations for for equality, for for a shared image of God idea? But I think I think the, that pattern goes back to Genesis three sixteen, which was a a prediction of a fallen male rule over women as a result of the fall, and it wasn't something you know. All the results of the fall are described as tragic. They're tragic results. They're not God establishing it as something good. So um, uh, Genesis 3.16, 
um, describes the woman's desire shall be for the man, he shall rule over her. And along, you know, right in the same thing is, is, is pain and death and death and childbirth and so on. And we're meant to, we're not meant to, um, embrace those things. We're meant to work against them, even as the gospel works against them. And God has come into, into the world to work against them. But I think there's a pattern there that, you know, is, Feminists of all schools have asked that question, and I think it really does go back to there's something very basic about the that goes back to the fall, to a very to a rebellion against God that led to um, gender this kind of gender um, conflict and abuse. When, and you mentioned some of the black women who were suffered worked with suffrage had a much more realistic yep, yep. perspective of what was possible. And sometimes I wonder if it was their closeness with scripture yep. and their closeness with suffering that allows them yep. to understand the realities of the fall and the yep. democracy and their ability to the, the ability to vote is uh, a picture, a glimpse of the beautiful relationship that we can have with God in heaven and others, mm-hmm. but it can never be fully attained to the side of yeah, no, I think I think you're right because I, I I don't know for sure, but I I know certainly some of these women and probably all of them were believe were Christians and they steeped in the Bible and in Scripture. It's most um, so many um, black folks were in in that era, um, and also from their experience that they they had every reason to 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 be to be more realistic, yeah, and yet hopeful. And, um, I mean, we're, we are members of, we are minority members of the black church. Those of you who've been here for a while know that, but you're new, so you probably don't know that. And one of the things that is, that we have learned and are so value is the, the holding together of, of, um, joy and the, but they're without denying suffering and joy and trust in God and, and, and His sovereignty and His goodness. God is good all the time. Um, but with no denial of suffering. In fact, it's the first church we've ever gone to where we've really heard the fall preached about, of the fallenness, the brokenness of this word preached about with, with such honesty. And, and yet, incredible rejoicing in our salvation, rejoicing in the reality of God's goodness in spite of it all and of our hope. It's, it's a, um, Gospel music has, does that in, in a most powerful way. Um, brings together both joy and suffering in a, such a powerful way. We we have learned a ton about worship um, from being there. Yeah. I don't know if there's any more things. Oh, re- repeat. Yeah, repeat the question before answering. Unfortunately, I couldn't repeat Anna's question because I. <laughs> You would have you would have to get up here and no 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 but but because you know about this um, UN with this UN Resolu- Security Council resolution. What does that mean? What do you mean, women's role, role in conflict? Causing conflict or in resolving conflict? Or uh, both. In both, actually, yes, peace, women's role as potential peacemakers, women's uh, need for a seat at the negotiating table, women as victims of, of um, gender-based violence, and that, that's and that that is recognized by the UN and needs to be addressed. 
but only the first time recognized, I think. Uh, what year was I that? I think 2013, but I could be in years down. But it, it's, um, it's oh. definitely in the 21st century. Wow. Um, but resisted, resisted, resisted. Resisted. That, yeah. that is very interesting. Um, I don't know if I can even... Wow. Ah, amazing. Wow. Okay, this the comment from Anna who's done a lot of work on about in Afghanistan working with women in Afghanistan and teaching now at Tufts. Um just commented on the fact that the UN resolution number 1325 was the first one to recognize the role of women in conflict both as victims of it uh, as a negotiators of peace and so on, and that this has been the most resisted um, resolution in 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 the history of the UN of the Security Council, and so that's relating to your comments about opposition. Right, and this this was in in reference to what I said about sort of opposition um, to women. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I'd like to hear more from you about that. Um, let me see. Does this? Yeah. Did anyone else have it? Yeah. Yeah. Um, this is just jumping right back to um, the events you were relating. Was there? I guess it's a two-part question. Um, was there ever any connection between the right to vote and being included in the draft? And if there was, did that have to be separated so that when we could get the right to vote, I could be wrong? Yeah, I don't. I don't know that. Um, does anyone else know that question about the, the right to vote and being included in the draft? I think they're quite separate. Yeah. Historically, I, I think it was so much before. Question. Way. Uh, well, yeah, that not, certainly not first way. You mean speaking about women being um, drafted or or men? You know, men voting and being drafted. No. And I don't know whether you could only be drafted if you were. The idea of a conscription, forced draft, is as old as the hills. I mean, tyrants have drafted, (laughs) uh, and the draft goes back. Washington tried to, uh, Lincoln certainly had a draft. so, so the idea of conscription is old, but whether there's this two issues: one would be dra- drafting women, and there was the openness of the military to women at all who want to be, and, and that's that's been a, a political issue more recently. Yeah, and that's more recent. But, but after we've given up the draft, really, I think most much of that discussion has been after we've scrapped yeah. the draft in the late Vietnam era. Uh, when, when were you, well, and were you meaning maybe like they wouldn't get, they were, perhaps they were opposing suffrage because they didn't want to deal with the issue of drafting women? Is that what you were asking? Um, I don't think that was even, I don't think it occurred to anyone about drafting, drafting women yeah. back then. No, no. And, and you know, um, most of the, most of 19th century feminists, first wave feminists were they they really saw they were you know this great fear that 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 giving them the vote or giving them any rights would destroy the family etc most of them were very committed to family first you know they were they were not they were not 
um, like fourth wave feminists <laughs> at all. I mean, they they were not trying to undermine um, family. They just wanted to be treated as human beings and be allowed to study, be allowed to work, be allowed to uh, have a civic identity, <laughs> um, be able to vote, have some protection from um, um, abusive husbands, etc. Uh, I mean, I, me- I mentioned the the liquor interest, the liquor and brewery interest, the fact that they were so against the vote because there was this historic, um, very strong historic connection between the temperance women and suffrage. And that was because um, husbands would, you know, get their salary, get drunk, beat their wives, and, there'd be, and there was no recourse. You know, a woman couldn't do anything about that. There was nowhere, the law, there was no law to protect her from being beaten, and there was no way, and then there'd be no money for food. And so that's why the temperance um, reformers were, they were very associated with women and with suffragists. A lot of them were the same people. You want to say something, Ben? Yeah, I just, um, going back to what you were saying about the separate spheres and a lot of the rhetoric and sort of the fear tactics, like right. if you give women the vote, the before you know, they'll be out, you know, talking politics in the bars or whatever, you know. Right. Um, so much of that just, just kind of, well, like you said, reeks of, of fear tactics. Mm-hmm. Is there any um, reflections in the books you've read uh, in terms of people promoting those kinds of ideas? Do they really believe that? Or it, it's, it looks like, it just looks like propaganda playing on the emotions of, of men, whereas the real reason why why this was resisted probably had mm-hmm. much more economic, <laughs> or, mm-hmm. or, or just what you know. Who, who, who will these women actually be voting for, and actually will my interest yeah. not be? Um, you know, yeah. You know, supported politically. It, it just it just seems like, and maybe maybe this is just uh, being naive looking back, but um, I just wonder how many people who are promoting that really actually believe that mm-hmm. that. that the home would, would crumble yeah. as a result of this. <laughs> yeah. Uh, ben asked the question of whether, how many, how, did people really, people who were arguing the separate sphere ideas that women's places in the home, they shouldn't be involved in politics at all, they shouldn't even be allowed to vote. The people who believe that, did they really believe that giving women the vote or any rights would um, would undermine the family and civilization or was that just kind of a front for more economic reasons? A lot of people really did believe it. I mean, in, in, especially through the 19th century. I mean, I think industrialization was caused a massive crisis and a massive crisis in terms of gender understanding. Because before that, every family, there's one historian who describes every family or every marriage was a two-person, one-career marriage. Every Every marriage, husband and wife, husbands and wives worked together um, with different divisions of labor. A family meal could just as well be a business meeting, and um, you know, on the farm or the shop or whatever. And um, obviously, women, when they were having babies, were doing more of the at home with babies part. But they were running they were running businesses together with their husbands and running farms together with their husbands. And when industrialization took economic work out of the home and and really it made it, it caused it did cause an amazing a crisis a major crisis when work left the home and um, people 
lot of people panicked and worried. Well, what's going to happen? And and for those and and clearly there was a lot of work, especially early on. There was still a lot of work that took place in the home that wasn't done in factories uh, until gradually more and more stuff left the home and went to factories. But there was there was in between stages when um, like women did piecework. They would uh, shoe manufacturers would give women the leather and you know they do they do part of the work and then the rest of it would go to the factory or whatever and so women were juggling economic work at home and children and everything else um, but with industrialization it it it, it did cause a, it caused a real crisis um, work leaving the home and a lot of ministers kind of panicked and a lot of and and that's really when the strong form idea of separate spheres, separate whole identities, true womanhood versus true manhood, defining and defining womanhood, and it was it was ironic because women were sort of put on a moral pedestal, but <laughs> but only within a very uh, in this this very constrained sphere. So they, a lot of ministers and and other people really did believe women are, you know, women that the angel of the home has to be home to assuage the husband when he comes back from the evil world of men and business and, you know, all of that's kind of evil and bad and dirty and they need to come home and be comforted by the wife. And there was really ridiculous, flowery, sentimental, incredible literature that's just nauseating about about this. That's only middle class. But this is, again, this is only the middle classes because poor people and... um, and once slavery was over, ex-slaves had to work for wages outside outside the home, and they were working in, you know, they they had to. There were baby farms where babies were were left because women had to work in factories, and men were in factories too, and plenty a lot of babies died because there just was, um, you know, no one to look after look after the children. It was really a very very the separate sphere of ideas was very much a middle-class um, um, ideal. Uh, and so I, I think at least at least early on, I think there, and, and those, those two guys I quoted, I wouldn't be surprised if they really did believe that. There was, there was a real sense of panic about, um, you know, this, things, are, things are very delicate. We're holding them together <laughs> by women being in their place and men being in their place. But it was... It's very interesting because there's so many dynamics with that. De Tocqueville, um, Alexis de Tocqueville, who was this Frenchman who who spent a lot of time in the States and wrote very interesting sort of reflections, big fat book, reflections on everything about American culture. And everyone quotes him because he's really, really interesting. But he was just struck. He writes a lot about gender in America. He came in the in the 1830s. And he just he just couldn't believe how men and women were just on two completely separate tracks. Um, their lives were totally different. But he was especially really struck by how American women, before they were married, these are not factory women, but the the more more middle class women were getting some education, were lively, were interesting, and all this stuff. And as soon as they married, it just got shut down. And he said they they suddenly they they well they lose their civic identity and and um, sort of lose seem to lose a sense of self 
in a way. Um, and he writes very interestingly about that. That's a follow-up question. Yeah. <laughs> That's all right. Can kind I of follow up with a question? <laughs> the the notion of the moral superiority of women um, is really interesting to me. Just that, and that again, that, that just sounds like such a smokescreen for us. Yeah. Let, let's let, let's call you morally superior so that um, so that we can keep you in the home unsullied. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. But to me to me it just yeah i'm just wondering where that comes from and just the idea that we wouldn't want someone morally superior to be involved in politics yeah <laughs> that was a danger really really interesting to me <laughs> i know but further because you know Justin argued the exact opposite he's like woman you are the devil's doorway yeah yeah, inferior you yeah. yeah. no that's true that was a really a 19th century idea because earlier women were seen as as you know, going back to Eve, Eve was blamed for the fall. Eve, with woman's nature, was blamed for, for temptation. But by the nineteenth, by the nineteenth century, um, uh, it really, it really um, kind of shifted to uh, the idea of women are, they're more religious. Well, part of that, part of it was because, because women stayed connected to the Christian faith as a lot of men left. And there, in the 19th century, um, people used to talk about sort of effeminate ministers, sort of very different from earlier, from like Calvinist, the more more Calvinist days, and the Puritans, where the men were, um, the church was very much, um, um, men and women were both in the church. Obviously, men were leaders. Men continued to be leaders in the 19th century, but a lot of men left the church and women became much more associated with religiosity and with... It's interesting. <laughs> Charles Darwin um, didn't want his wife to know because she was, he, she was more... She had faith and morality and all these things. Didn't want her to know about his ideas because they might under, undermine the values in their home. Didn't want his wife to, to read his books or know that he believed that there really wasn't a God and we were just all, you know, we just all evolved by chance because he sort of saw some of the moral implications of that and was was nervous about it. So she was meant to stay, you know, religious and, um, and uphold uh, the sort of Christian virtues while his worldview and not really become familiar with his worldview, which might undermine those things in time. It was the same with Voltaire, except he included not just his wife, but the servants should not read his his writings. Oh, he didn't really? Want his wife or any of the servants to read his writings because they would be totally uh, uh, undercut their, the morale, their morality that he depended on. <laughs> yeah. That is really interesting. That is very interesting. Oh. Well, and in the connection with like with the golden golden age, golden era, I can't remember what it is, and then. Some argument arguments that okay, you're the pure ones, women. So then the men have a card to automatically say they get to play the card that their standard has automatically been lowered because they're a man. And so um, leading towards some of the uh, potentially towards some of the not passivity but almost apathy. Um, regarding their responsibility with headship in homes. Hmm. Um, I may not be making a good comment, but that's just something that brings to my mind that the shift. 
where there's male headship is respected and, and expected. Mm-hmm. And in our culture, it's like when men are saying, oh, no, I'm going to play this card where you guys are perfect. So I'm going to place that expectation that mm-hmm. you, you women are morally perfect, which means I don't have to be because you're, gonna, you're, you're in charge of that standard. You're going to do, you're gonna do the morality part? <laughs> yeah, I get to do whatever I want. I can go drink and speak easy and, and, and beat you afterwards and the kids and not bring him. Yeah. I'm being a little bit dramatic. <clears throat> yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure I can repeat that. <laughs> Sorry for the <clears throat> for the for the folks here. But um I just had a thought now I can't remember where I can't remember what my thought was. Hmm.